This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, P&G has put forward a new media policy that could lead to tighter policing of journalists. It's still in the draft stage, but some journalists say their needs still haven't been taken into account. Our biggest concern is not exactly the regulation of journalists and media houses. It's it's the protection of journalists, which we don't really have at the moment. The Australian government has rushed through legislation to keep its specific detention program going on Nauru. One former refugee detained in Papua New Guinea, though, says enough is enough. Forty people have been killed in Manusan and Nauru. Hundreds of people have been damaged. And we'll hear what it's like to trek more than 100 kilometres through PNG's highlands to deliver life-saving medicine. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First to the Solomon Islands, where the town of Aoki has returned to calm after violence flared in response to the ousting of its provincial premier yesterday. Police used tear gas to quell dozens of people protesting the no-confidence vote and removal of Daniel Sudani as premier of Malaita province. Mr. Sudani rose to prominence as an anti-China campaigner and a fierce critic of Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare. The ABC's Christian Rita Almanu Leong was there in Aoki and took a look at how the day unfolded. It started with a peaceful protest through the streets of Aoki town. Premier Sweden's supporters calling for the no confidence vote to be abandoned. In the provincial government's chambers, there was no sign of the premier or his cabinet ministers. Only the opposition were there and they had the numbers. The majority needed to oust Sudani. Sudani's supporters say the vote should only have taken place after the High Court heard an appeal against the Speaker. Speaker Ronnie Butala didn't receive any written submissions from Sudani's non-attendance, which prompted him to continue with the motion an hour late. Usually when there is a motion, we, we, we make sure that the motion then go through the, the schedules of standing orders. Usually a motion goes through a schedule of standing order, after which a notice of seven days is being served. Unfortunately, I realized the executive and the premier wasn't here, so I sent my chief security to find out what the problem was. They decided to not attend, perhaps due to their decision with the High Court ruling. Mr. Suidani's supporters say he filed a motion of appeal in the Solomon Islands High Court questioning the Speaker's decision to allow the no-confidence vote to be held. But Speaker Roni Butala defended this stand. My office is in the view that any appeal on any decision must be notified to my office. 
I haven't received any notification from the High Court, so I presume there's nothing wrong. He says people need to know that the Attorney General's office is the right place for him as a teacher by profession to seek advice on matters dealing with his provincial government. I have no legal advisor here. I have no legal advisor here from the province to advise me, so I was seeking advice on this thing that might happen. From now, the deputy premier becomes the acting premier. But it was at this moment, with the end of proceedings, that tensions spiked. Then... Police fired on dozens of people with tear gas. There were no injuries or damage to property reported and police were able to contain the outbreak of violence. For locals living in Aoki, they say they only wanted a peaceful process. The last vote of no confidence had too many people and it was a frightening experience. We are concerned because we support the Mara government, but we are here to see whatever the outcome is. We still support Sridhani because he has our interest in his heart. Daniel Suidani has accepted the results of the no-confidence vote and a new premier will be elected on Friday. That was Krisinruta Almanu Leong in Malaita province with that story. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. In Papua New Guinea, the government has unveiled a new draft policy that could lead to tighter regulation of journalists and the media. The government says the policy is designed to improve democracy and support PNG's development as a nation. But some people in the industry have their doubts. Marion Farr spoke with senior PNG journalist and media expert Scott Wade about the policy, which includes establishing a new PNG media council that will have regulatory powers under the Lord. The Media Council has been, uh, uh, I guess, the ad hoc representative body for uh, media organizations in Papua New Guinea. In its present form, it really doesn't have the means to regulate as the government would like. And I think the intention of this current policy paper is to give the Media Council teeth so that it can regulate the industry and that is all on paper and it's bound to get uh, a whole heap of responses from uh, media organizations and journalists and other media practitioners themselves. The intention is quite vague uh, in, in my view in that it talks about legislative changes and you know some sort of regulation that's imposed or carried out by the Media Council. Now, the, the form in which the legislation is going to be presented in Parliament is a whole different matter. We haven't had the benefit of seeing that legislation, or at least a draft of that legislation. So that that is a whole different animal that we would like to see. I mean, personally, I would like to see that 
the form of that legislation, how it will turn out and what kind of provisions will be in that legislation. Mm. In the policy paper, it talks about giving the Media Council regulatory powers to increase, I guess, some press freedom in PNG. In an ideal world, what sort of powers would you like to see the body have so that it could deliver that mandate of improving press and media freedom in PNG? Yeah, I'd like to see the Media Council be allowed that freedom to operate and be armed at least in terms of resources to protect journalists. That's that's our biggest concern. Our biggest concern is not exactly the regulation of journalists and media houses. It's it's the protection of journalists, which we don't really have at the moment. So, for, for instance, in my case, when I was suspended, it was only due to public pressure that forced the government and forced uh, the powers that were to have me reinstated. And it was the same with the current president of the Media Council, Neville Choi, who was then head of news for MTV. It was only because of public pressure that allowed him to be returned, to be reinstated to his job. So if there is to be changes, there has to be more protection for journalists in terms of an organization or something that has the means to source legal help to support journalists. That is the, uh, I guess, priority number one. A regulation or any form of regulation will be, I guess, in the long term detrimental to overall to the overall journalism uh, media landscape in Papua New Guinea. You know, other people may disagree with me. And, and the other thing is the emphasis on training has to be in that media policy because we have a decline in journalism standards in Papua New Guinea and it's primarily because of the kind of training and the kind of funding that universities get. And when you have a lack of resources in universities, you you have badly trained journalists coming into the industry. Uh, I note that the other thing that's mentioned in the policy is accreditation. Now, accreditation and licensing, from the outset, it may look like a noble effort by the government to improve standard standards, but uh, from within the industry, it looks like a means to control individual journalists because it will be easier to de-license somebody who's said something that people don't like. Mm-mm. Yeah, I was interested in that part of the policy and I wonder how it could be applied to social media given that so much news and information is disseminated by just members of the public through social media in PNG. Yeah, that's uh, how are you going to regulate social media content producers? Are you going to license them as well? So will there be several categories of licensing uh, that that is a question that uh, I guess the Minister for Communications needs to answer. Now, one other thing mentioned in this policy is the aim to increase media diversity in PNG. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Is 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 media diversity a big issue in Papua New Guinea? And if so, where does the attention need to be focused to kind of improve representation? Yeah, I, I don't know where that's coming from. I, I don't know where that's coming from. I mean, who's influencing that part of media diversity, uh, that, that clause in the in the draft policy? Um, as far as I am concerned, the media is as diverse as it can be uh, in, in a country like ours. Uh, so 
from my perspective, I don't see a problem with media diversity. I guess the inclusion of people with special needs is a concern and it always has been a concern for me because uh, whenever I've run trainings, media trainings, we've always had this difficulty of getting people with special needs into these trainings and then trying to bridge that understanding between media practitioners and that community. That was a senior PNG journalist and media expert, Scott Wyde, speaking there with Marion Farr. Now it's that time in Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, I'm joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning to you, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Happy Wednesday. Yes, a happy Wednesday to you, um, hump day. Uh, but the days might be feeling a bit longer for a New Zealand pilot, a pilot who's been taken hostage in Papua. Can you tell us more about that story? Yeah, you're certainly right about that. So uh, separatist fighters uh, in the Papua region have, uh, have captured a pilot after he landed uh, in the remote Highland area on Tuesday. So uh, this is reported by the Jakarta Post who published a statement from a pro-independence group, the West Papua National Liberation Army, uh, who have claimed responsibility for the kidnapping. Uh, The pilot has so far been identified as uh, Captain Philip Mertens from New Zealand. Uh, It's understood he had five passengers on board with him at the time at the capture as well. However, it's unclear if they have been abducted. Um, what we do know is that he landed safely before being attacked. Uh, the plane has since been destroyed uh, and the kidnappers have come out and said uh, they won't release him until the Indonesian government acknowledge the independence of West Papua. Yeah, and very interesting. This is the first time I've heard of a, um, a hostage effort uh, in the, well, effort, I should say, a hostage situation uh, that West Papuans have um, deployed in their, um, their fight for independence. Um, what's being done to get this pilot released? Yeah, look, it's, it's pretty drastic measures, uh, unfortunately, taken by this group. Um, local authorities have confirmed they are investigating the incident. Uh, however, they can't actually send any personnel to the area, just given how difficult uh, it is to reach. The only way to get there is is via plane. Um, the, New, the New Zealand Embassy in Jakarta and the Foreign Ministry is yet to comment on the matter, uh, but I imagine they'll be making uh, inquiries. And, uh, and what's interesting as well is that this particular group. It's actually the first time they've taken a hostage since 1966. Oh, well, there you go. So it um, has it has happened before. And that, that 1966 is a while ago. Mm, I think time. that was before the UN vote that um, I guess led, that prompted calls um, for, for West Papua to exist as a sovereign nation um, because they, they questioned the, the legality of that vote. I think it happened in 1970s or 1960s if I um, remember correctly. But very, very interesting. Yes, first time I've heard of a hostage situation there. Um, now let's head to Guam, where a bill has been introduced um, to use caning as a form of punishment. Why is that? I know, it's like uh, going back in time, isn't it? Um, so this bill was actually formally put forth to Guam's Senate on January 27 uh, as a way to curb the territory's growing crime rate. Um, so this is reported by RNZ, who actually interviewed the father of the bill, Senator Dwayne San Nicholas, who was elected last year. And as part of his campa- campaign, he promised to address Guam's growing crime rate, and uh, and this is how he plans to do it. Yeah, so how do, exactly does it, uh, does it work? How does he think it 
it'll it'll help the situation. Well, basically, he thinks prison sentences aren't acting uh, as a big enough deterrent uh, at present time. Uh, He says at the moment, criminals are just sitting there locked up. They're not learning their lesson. and, uh, And as a result, crime is continuing to rise across the island. Um, I know that's a, it's a very controversial take on the matter and debate is, is obviously stirring within Guam about it. There's some very strong opinions out there. Um, but the long, of, long and short of it is that he simply thinks physical pain will act as a stronger deterrent. Mm, physical pain stronger than, uh, I guess, being in confinement. Um, what, what, what is caning exactly and what crimes could constitute this? Well, that's actually a pretty good question. I mean, when I think of the word cane, I think of, you know, the schools in the 1960s that my dad used to tell me about, you know, when they were caught by the teacher, they'd hold out their hands, someone had cane their knuckles. And, and then there's the other variation of it where you think back to the colonial days of somebody getting, you know, lashed on the back. So I'm not sure what the modern iteration of it means. Um, what I do know is, though, under the bill, a, a violent act would be what constitutes this maximum penalty of 24 lashes. Um, and what's interesting is that caning is actually considered inhumane by 173 countries around the world. But given that Guam is a U.S. US territory and the U.S., you know, there's a number of states which still implement corporal punishment and even the death penalty, um, I, mean, I think I don't think they're one of them. Mm, very interesting uh, stuff, and that reported, I think, by Radio New Zealand and also by um, Guam Daily, as you as you mentioned earlier. Um, yes, it is still draft legislation. It's just been introduced to the Senate, so it hasn't happened yet. So we will keep an eye to see where that goes. Um, and now to Samoa, where some social media groups have raised concerns from members of the com- public, um, or, or at least people, part of these social media groups have been raised some concerns, um, and that so much so that authorities are investigating. Can you tell us about what these social media groups are and why the investigation is happening? Yeah, so really interesting one. So police are investigating a, a number of these groups. Um, the main one seems to be called Do We Have the Same Boyfriend? Um, and, and they're basically they're investigating the impact that it's having on married couples and families. So this is reported by the Samoa Observer, and as the name states, it, it's essentially a group that allows women to find out if their partners are dating other people. Um, it's inspired by similar groups uh, where girls basically post photos of their lovers and, 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 and so other women can essentially assist them in, in revealing their infidelity, if, if any infidelity exists, of course. Um, however, concerns have now been raised to police that it's become so intense that, uh, that lives are actually sort of being ruined. And, and uh, uh, another post made, uh, made to police has stated that groups like these have actually exposed a number of innocent people uh, with much of the misinformation uh, coming from teens who are essentially trolling people to have a laugh. Yeah, there's not, uh, I read the same article and there wasn't too much information exactly what the investigations would be around, how these lives are being ruined. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see social media when people can use it to band together, particularly women or other marginalized groups, to sort of call attention to problems in their life, which might be mm. infidelity in this case. I, I wonder what claims the police and authorities are making to say why they should intervene. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting uh, story there. Um yeah, it's like a lot of things. I think these groups, you know, they start with good intentions, but there's always going to be a handful of people who sort of ruin it for others. And, and I guess what makes this sort of particularly interesting as well is that when you're talking about things like matters of the heart, you know, and when relationships end, you know, there's always that room for people to, you know, get a bit vindictive or jaded lovers to, to you know, go off on their own and stuff like that. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. There are two sides to every story. Sometimes I think maybe maybe this is a space for women to, to share stories that otherwise don't get out. 
particularly stories if it's to do with domestic violence or something mm. like that. It's good to share. Um, but yes, a lot of, lot of sides to this. We'll keep an eye on it. Thank you, Kyle, for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. Do stay tuned, though. We'll find out why Australia has rushed through some legislation to make sure that its detention facility in Nauru stays afloat. And coming up later in the show, we'll also hear from the founder of the Kumaru Foundation. Uh, he's in Melbourne, actually, so we'll be joining us in the studio to hear about his trek to raise money for that charity. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional every time we go out there and you sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. This is Pacific Beat. On and off for almost 20 years, Nauru has been used as a place for Australia to detain its asylum seekers and refugees. But it's ter- it, but it turns out the law that designates the Pacific country as a regional processing centre expired last October, leaving the Australian government with little option but to rush through a legislative instrument without debate to cement the policy into the future. It's led to criticism from all sides, including from one of the nation's most high profile refugees. Matt Doran with this report. Beirut's Bachani spent six years locked away in an offshore processing centre on Manus Island. And today he had a simple message for the architects of his detention as he arrived in Parliament House. For Mr Peter Dutton I should mention that he said that I never ever come to Australia and I really like to say that he never ever become the Prime Minister of Australia. The Kurdish refugee advocate joining calls from the Greens for a royal commission into Australia's immigration detention system. I think people of Australia have this right to know that what the government, and of course I'm talking about both political parties, what they have done in offshore and in onshore. 40 people have been killed in Manus Island and Nauru. Hundreds of people have been damaged. In politics, timing is everything, making Beirut Bachani's appearance on Capitol Hill all the more fascinating. Across the other side of the building, the federal government was madly trying to stitch up a hole it let open in Australia's border protection regime. We have two time-sensitive issues uh, that we have to deal with. Leader of the House Tony Burke rushing two motions into the House of Representatives, one dealing with superannuation and the other redesignating Nauru as a regional processing country. Country, something which lapsed late last year. If we were to have uh, a long debate, which uh, I appreciate on the nature of the issues, many members would like to be able to, to, to speak on it, uh, but there are real-life consequences if we're not able to deal with these issues today. The crossbench clamouring for due process to be followed. This is something that has been sprung on the parliament today. Independent MP Zoe Daniel among those to complain. This is not the way this parliament should operate. The Nauru issue, to my mind, is controversial, given, much as the government might think it's standard, how much we spend on offshore detention. And I think that our communities would expect 
that we would give it due consideration. We haven't been given the time to do that. Fellow independent Monique Ryan echoing those sentiments. Bundling up this bill on Nauru with a bill on superannuation, which also has implications with respect to transparency, is egregious and perverse. But the government doesn't need them to get the motion over the line, given the coalition's support for strict border policies. The opposition certainly accepts the proposition that there is absolutely a degree of urgency. The manager of opposition business is Paul Fletcher. Let's be clear why there is urgency because this government has absolutely and hopelessly dropped the ball on a matter which is of uh, importance, considerable importance, to our national security. Independent MP Helen Haynes connecting uncomfortable dots for the government. When Baruz Bachani has just been in this Parliament House historically speaking to us about offshore detention, I, I find this an excruciating an exquisite irony, actually. For Beirut's Bachani, the parliamentary wrangling means just one thing. That shows that Australia has not got a lesson from this. That was a refugee, Beirut's Bachani, ending that report by Matt Doran. Listening to Pacific Beat, can seaweeds remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it long enough to earn carbon credits? That's the question a team of researchers at the University of Tasmania in Australia are trying to find out. The companies across the world rely on carbon offsetting credits as a way to display their green credentials, a tactic often often criticised by climate activists. Professor Katri Onar spoke to the ABC. Sees Fiona Breen about how she's trying to work out the carbon impact of seaweed. In order to demonstrate that seaweeds can sequester carbon, you have to be able to measure the amount of carbon dioxide that is removed from the atmosphere and then how much of it is stored long term. So the long term storage, we say, is over 100 years and that has to be in an, a form that is unreactive and then won't return to the atmosphere. Have you developed a way to actually measure the, the or you're looking at a framework? No, we we have a framework a which ha- must, probably has about 20 different components that need to be measured in order to demonstrate that seaweeds would are sequestering carbon and to be able to start to put numbers on that. So there's no numbers on these different parts of the framework yet. They're, they're just there. And so some things we know quite well. For example, we know the rates of seaweed photosynthesis. We know how much seaweed is in a seaweed bed. We know how much carbon is in that. So we have numbers around that. Things we don't have numbers around are how much of that seaweed carbon ends up in sediments or ends up locked away in a form that is a long-term, 100-year storage. What we do in the framework is we start off by comparing seaweeds to trees. So in on trest- in terrestrial environments, we know that trees take up carbon dioxide, they store it as wood, which can be stored for long-term, maybe 100 years or more, and also it's stored as soil. So soil is the biggest, by far the biggest carbon store we've got on the planet Earth. Seaweeds we also call forests, and people think that perhaps they might sequester carbon in the same way that trees do. But seaweeds are really different because they have a very fast turnover time. So they, their lifespan is only a, is like maximum 10 years. In most cases, it's only one to two years. So they're not really storing carbon like trees on a long-term basis. 
Because trees really in this new era are quite valuable in terms of carbon credit schemes, etc. They're earning money. Yeah, so yes, so trees do sequester carbon because and they store it as living biomass. If, for example, if they live to be a hundred years or more, some trees are a thousand years old. But and they particularly store it as soil. So that we know that trees can be used for carbon credits, and we know and re- it's relatively easy to quantify. Well, I know that uh, various aquaculture farms are sort of trialling growing seaweeds, uh, perhaps to offset some things in, in their industry, but also as carbon sequestration. Is that happening around the place? There's a lot of work, there's a lot of interest in doing that. However, because they've got very short lifespans, that carbon isn't tied up for very long. And if it's an aquaculture, it's only tied up for a few months before they're harvested. So in aquaculture situations, it's very difficult to demonstrate that that carbon, it's got to be locked up for a long time. So there may be applications. So for example, you could use seaweed, for example, to replace oil for plastics. And in that way, you're sort of using seaweeds and not using oil. So that is some form of sequestration, but to be, it's probably quite small. Uh, very small actually compared to what we need to do to remove it from the atmosphere. So do you think that maybe seaweed even though you're looking at this framework might not be as uh, good as forests for example? Uh, From my knowledge at the moment they're probably not as good as forests and at sequestering carbon just because of the very fast life cycles however what we have to be able to do is to track where the seaweed's going to. So when it gets ripped off the rocks, where does it end up? Some of it ends up back in the terrestrial environment. It gets washed up on the shore. Some of it may end up in the deep ocean and in the sediments, and that's what people are trying to quantify now to see if that is a possible storage for, for seaweeds. But we are some ways away from being able to understand this correctly. And is part of this sort of framework that you're developing, is that about making it transparent and accountable and sort of ticking boxes so we know that you know, if a claim is made, it is actually true? Well, absolutely. So if we want to allocate carbon credits to anything, it's got to be verifiable. And we've got to have integrity around the numbers. And to do this is actually a lot of work because it isn't just measuring, you know, how much seaweed's there. You've got to find out where it goes and how much is that seaweed growth resulting in the drawdown of atmospheric carbon dioxide into seawater? And is that then going to be locked up for more than 100 years and you have to be able to know all these numbers to be able to to put a number on a credit and at the moment we don't have those numbers because credits are valuable you can actually earn money from the government absolutely you can earn money for that and whether or not a seaweed bed is you know we know it's a short-term carbon store they've been there for many thousands of years so they're doing a very good job at cycling carbon in the coastal ocean already Um, Whether that's a carbon credit is a different question. That is Professor Catriona Heard from the University of Tasmania speaking there with the ABC's Fiona Breen. Pacific Beat. You are listening to Pacific Beat and we have a very special guest with us now in the studio. Vincent Kumara heads off on a trek every year to raise money for remote villages in the Bismarck range of Papua New Guinea. This year, though, he's walking through Tasmania, the Australian state itself. Before he heads there, though, Vincent has trekked right here into our studio. Good morning to you, Vincent. Welcome to Pacific Beat. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into your foundation and the reason and why you're trekking. Um, can you tell us, to, why have you chosen Tasmania? Why are you doing this walk? 
Oh, thank you. I think Tasmania, if I were to look at the Australian landscape, Tasmania is a mountains and deep gorges. And if, uh, if I were to consider somewhere more challenging in Australia to trek like Okoda, it would be Tasmania. Yes, yes. So it's, does it remind you perhaps of the landscape back in Papua New Guinea? Uh, I haven't been there, but from the pictures I've seen, it sort of uh, reminds me of the landscape. I like challenges. So if, if I've been backpacking and trekking in PNG, it's very challenging out there in the rugged mountains. And I think uh, Tasmania would give me a good experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's hope so. I mean, it's going to be cold, perhaps, compared to Papua New Guinea. Are you prepared for that? I heard, and I'm I'm prepared for that. <laughs> so how, how exactly, how long will this walk be? What exactly will you be doing? It's going to be for about six days. I'm going down on the 9th and coming back on the 16th. The rest of the days in between will be tracking and some little bit of sightseeing. So I will be doing that for about six days. And I understand you're doing this for your charity, Vincent. Can you tell me a bit about your foundation? Yeah, Kumara Foundation is a community-based organization based in Bundi, a remote part of Medang province, right under the foothills of Mount Willem, which is the highest mountain in the Pacific and one of the seven summits of the world. Uh, it's geographically rugged and extremely challenging. Mm. So the foundation focuses on providing basic health services, education, uh, community services, and sustainable development projects to help improve the livelihood of the locals with a mission to make Bundi a better, progressive, and a violent-free community in 10 years' time. And why did you start this foundation? Are you from that area yourself? Yes, I am a local from Bundi. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to school there, at St. Francis Primary School in Bundi. Back then, I would say proudly that Bundi is a gem of civilization, uh, right in the heart of nowhere in the Bismarck Range. But, you know, it was like fast forward, almost 47 years after independence now in Papua New Guinea. But um, things are sort of dwindling down, going backward a little. Um, With the hydroelectricity shut down, the dam, the local last strip in Bundi Station has been shut down. Um, we don't have a lot of medical personnel at the Bundi Health Center. Uh, right now, as I'm speaking, uh, there's no medical personnel working at Bundi Health Center serving the local population, which is the only health center in Upper Bundi that we have. Mm. So uh, it's deteriorating. It's going backwards. So that's the stark reality of the people out there in terms of basic government services that they have been receiving. So I decided to do something in that space, you know, come in between. Uh, I was exposed to a lot of things when studying abroad. So I decided to give back to the community. And I started a foundation uh, that focuses on these areas where I felt that will help improve the livelihood of the locals. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what what impact does that lack of services? I mean, because you're from Bundi, so you mm-hmm. see it face to face. What what do you see when you don't have access to medical staff, as you mentioned, when you don't when you are in such a remote area? How does how do people experience that? Um, so sometimes people just have no hope. Uh, they just took it like it's just business as usual, but it is not. Mm. You know, when you 
educated, you live abroad, you fight for certain basic fundamental rights, like having access to basic health care should be a fundamental right. Quality education should be a fundamental right. And it's needed for a country that's progress. You know, you, you want to advance the course of a nation. And when you see that schools are struggling and basic um, health services are struggling, I mean, you want, a, you want a healthy community, you want a productive nation, people need to be healthy. And you want a good education system to move the country forward. And, and when you see things like this, um, and it's several years after independence, it's, it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite upsetting when you have a heart for the nation or your people. So I said, well, why not? If, you know, like J.F. Kennedy said, don't wait for the government. Um, you just have to do something you want to do for your country. Yes, yes. And, and yeah. what, what has your foundation been able to do? Because it's a lot of, a lot of things that you're trying to, I guess, <laughs> yes. solve. What, what, have you, um, what, what are you trying to do to solve them? Um, we have over the years, uh, we built two medical dispensaries. And uh, through the medical dispensary, we've been able to treat lo- uh, local locals. Um, we actually get some uh, community health workers, registered nurses to come up and teach our team with basic aid skills, uh, first aid skills and how to dispense basic medications, uh, mostly of the tropical diseases. And we started doing that in 2014. Um, and then we built a snow pass eco lodge and started promoting ecotourism, which is the first um, ecotourism project in that part of the Bismarck Range. Um, And eventually we started getting volunteer medical doctors and nurses from um, within the country, especially from the Simbu Provincial Health Authority and the Kundia General Hospital, and also um, from abroad through the the networks that I have. And we started doing uh, medical patrols. And that is a hallmark of the foundation through our rural health focus. We've been doing medical patrols ever since then. I think we've conducted over 28 medical patrols, saving over 20,000 patients. Wow, 20,000. Yeah. I mean, despite this place being remote, it's still very highly populated. It's, it's isn't quite it? pop- Bundi has like uh, 20,000 population, I would reckon. Um, but a lot of people have actually migrated to live in settlements in the urban areas. So there's more population living outside of Bundi than there are in the villages for better services. Services they have actually moved out, mm. but for those who, who stayed back, um, those are some of the services that they um, they lack. So we have to try to try to help. You know, come in between to assist. Um, tell me about these um, patrols, uh, Vincent, because you're here in Australia doing your own trek. But I understand trekking is pretty integral to your foundation itself right. to get to these places. <laughs> Can you tell me about that process? Every year we have an annual travel to change medical patrol in partnership with the Sir Brian Bell Foundation. Um, the Sir Brian Bell Foundation is a core f- uh, sponsor who supports all the logistics that uh, logistical costs for the travel to change medical campaign. And we started that in 2017. We've done the Bismarck Ranges from Kerawagi and Chimbu to Jimmy Ambulwa. We crossed the Mount William Range to Bundi over to uh, Goroka Eastern Highlands. We've done the Sarawaget and Finistra Ranges. Um, we just did Kokoda last year in November wow. to December. That was fun too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did all this as a, it's like uh, we want to bring the hospital to their doorstep. It's, mm-hmm. it's a concept that we have started on in 2017. In PNG, significant population, about 86% still live in rural areas. And majority of them in remote areas do not have access to basic health services. And 
Uh, it's due to two factors. One is that they can't afford to go to a nearest hospital for better services. Um, and the other is that um, the villages are scattered and they are far from the nearest health center. So instead of them struggling to go to the nearest health center, we would like to help them out by bringing these medical services to their doorsteps. So we would engage volunteer medical doctors, nurses, um, community health workers, and uh, in partnership with other organizations like the Simbu Provincial Health Authority, the Gundia Gembok District Health Services, and the Sir Brian Bell Foundation. Um, we would gather the medical supplies and a team of volunteers. Um, we have a dedicated team of trackers from the foundation team who are all grassroots from different villages of Bundi. Oh, wow. uh, so they would carry the backpack and assist the medical workers. And uh, we would track for days, sometimes a week, sometimes even more. And we would be going to those isolated villages along the Bismarck and finish the ranges. And, and we would start tra- treating people where they are instead of them trying to go to the hospital. And it's, 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 a, it's a very, uh, very challenging uh, course, but also it's very rewarding because once you get to the villages and you see the, the welcome that they put, put on just to get you into the villages, and you see there are diseases that they have been actually battling with for so many years, and it's just like you're just restoring hope in their lives. Sometimes the tears just roll down your cheeks when you see the way they receive you. They are so genuine, and it's just like you are, you are the prayer to their I mean, you had answered prayer to them. Mm. And uh, that sort of inspired us, despite the fact that uh, it's a challenging thing for us. to do. It's quite risky for our medical volunteers as well. But it's, it's, it's a good thing. We appreciate the culture. We get to see new environments. Uh, PNG is extremely diverse. A land of 1,300 tribes with more than 860 languages. So um, it's like every single turn you, you take is an adventure of its own. <laughs> so <laughs> we are motivated by that, by inspiring other people. We touch their lives. We're making a difference in our own country. Um, so that's a good thing. That kept us going. Yes, yes. It sounds like a difficult track I mean, by yeah. foot, but um, rewarding <laughs> nonetheless. And, and health services is one aspect of, of what the foundation does, your foundation. That's right. But I understand there's lots more. In fact, I, I saw online on your Facebook page that um, your foundation was involved in settling a, a um, dispute between two warring tribes, bringing peace there. Can you tell us a bit about that, I guess, extra, quite unique, Papua New Guinea, <laughs> unique aspect to your work? Yeah, tribal fights and stuff could be um, could aspire up any time. You know, it's unpredictable. But our mission is to make Bundi a better, progressive, and violent-free community. Mm. And if we want to progress forward, we don't have to promote violence in the community. And violence can stem out from anything. It could be socially-related violence or gender-based violence or anything. But Foundation is against violence. In 2016, I was awarded the Man of Honor. Mm. Uh, it's a, a ordinary Papua New Guinea is doing extraordinary thing in their own space. Uh, it's a campaign against violence. So we took that quite seriously in the foundation. We want to build a better progressive Bundi, so we don't want uh, the community to be disintegrated. Um, in order for us to um, set up our projects or bring our services into these remote communities, we don't want those communities to be up on their toes, you know. We want them to be settled so we can work together to enhance the mission of the foundation in bettering the lives around people. And if we see a community that's, you know, that's uh, violent, Unsettled, uh, it doesn't really work good for us. Mm. And uh, we cannot achieve our mission successfully. So we have a very good relationship with almost all the rural communities of Bundi that we work in. 
Uh, we have ground committees set up in all the major villages of Bundi. So we have a community liaison officer that goes around, and whenever the foundation goes, we want to make sure that we step foot in a safe secure and a good environment. So we mobilize the community together. For us to succeed and move forward, the community needs to be stable. So we cannot uh, do it alone on our own. We need the community participation. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to be part of the journey. Um, they need to take ownership in the, in the visions that we have. And it's a shared value. And if they could only do that, we believe that we will achieve our mission successfully by working together. And you cannot do that when the community is violent and disturbed. Yes. Um, and <laughs> And Vincent, the reason that you're here with us on, on Pacific Beat is because you're, you're doing this trek. Can you tell us a bit about why you're doing it, what you hope to gain from the trek? Yes. Um, I'm actually doing a walk for change. It's a part of the Travel to Change campaign that we've normally done in PNG, but the Walk for Change is specifically, uh, it's a one-man solo sort of tracking in, in Tasmania that I wanted to do. Um, it's to raise funds. To raise funds to help us build an orphanage dormitory in Gambok Simbu province. Under rural education focus, we have embarked on a journey which is quite interesting. We wanted to give um, the orphans of Bundi and very disadvantaged kids from extremely remote areas where there are no edu- uh, basic health and education services. Um, we actually took them over to Chimbu and have them in a makeshift dormitory that we built. It's a seven meter by eight meter makeshift dormitory and you have like 46 students in there. Wow. It's quite crowded yes. and it can be unhygienic. It is quite unhygienic. Um, so it's we have to start work. somewhere nonetheless. We, we, you know, it, it's a problem we have to solve and it, it can, we have to start somewhere. It's a humble journey for us. Yes. So I decided to, um, come down to Australia, go to this Work for Change campaign in Tasmania. So we create a GoFundMe link. Lovely. Um, well, I, we, we, um, I'm sure they can find it on your um, website that has all the details. Vincent, all the best for your journey. We're coming <laughs> up to the top of the clock, but thank you for joining us for Pacific Beat. Thank you.